Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute podcast network. I'm Colin Robertson, your host and vice president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Today's episode is from a webinar on trade under the Biden administration. This webinar took place on May the 12th, 2021, and featured Peterson's Institute's Jeff Schott and Gary Huffbauer. The webinar is part of a series of American security challenges funded by the United States Department of State. The goal of the Department of State program is to improve Canadian understanding of American policy perspective in order to harness better communication and coordination between the two neighboring countries. Please note that the opinions, findings, and conclusions stated herein are those of the guest speakers and the moderator only and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. Jeff Schott is a senior fellow working on international trade policy and economic sanctions at the Peterson Institute. The author of many publications, Jeff is a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Economic Policy and previously co-chaired the Trade and Environment Policy Advisory Committee for the U.S. Trade Representative. Gary Huffbauer is a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. The author of many publications, Gary previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Trade and Investment Policy at the U.S. Treasury and Director of the International Tax Staff at the Treasury. Gary and Jeff were my go-to guys on things trade when I was posted at Canada's Embassy in Washington, and I continue to look to them for advice and analysis. You can find their research on the Peterson website. We find Jeff in Washington, uh, sorry, Jeff is in uh, Florida, and Gary is in New Mexico. Some context for our audience. After 100 days in office, President Joe Biden recently told a joint session of Congress that America is moving again. With slim majorities in both the House and the Senate, Mr. Biden is moving deliberately but quickly on his agenda. The 78-year-old Joe Biden, with 36 years of experience in the Senate, and another eight as vice president, knows that new administrations usually lose seats in their first midterms. Of course, the first midterms will be in November 2022. In terms of trade, the United States Trade Representative recently delivered President Biden's 2021 Trade Agenda and 2020 Annual Report to Congress. It details a comprehensive trade policy to help the U.S. recover from the pandemic and build back better. It identifies four national challenges. Building a stronger industrial and innovation base so the future is made in America building sustainable infrastructure and a clean energy future, building a stronger caring economy, and advancing racial equity. Mr. Biden declares that he wants a fair international trading system that promotes inclusive economic growth and reflects America's universal values. Trade policy must respect the dignity of work and value Americans as workers and wage earners, not only as consumers, says the president. U.S. global leadership is to be restored through, quote, combating forced and exploitive labor conditions, corruption, and discrimination against women and minorities around the world. In his recent address to Congress, Mr. Biden doubled down on Made in America saying, quote, all the investments in the American jobs plan will be guided by one principle, buy American. American tax dollars are going to be used to buy, to buy American products made in America that create American jobs the way it should be, said the president. Strong words. From a Canadian perspective, the February 23rd virtual summit between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Biden and senior members of their cabinets produced a detailed roadmap 
the crosswalks with many of those objectives, economic recovery, inclusiveness, and a focus on climate, environment, and labor standards. Trade always looms large in what continues to be a, the biggest bilateral trade relationship between any two countries. And as always, there are irritants by American pipelines and lumber and the challenges around the Canada-US border closed to all but essential traffic for 15 months. So let's begin. And I'll start with you, Jeff, and then I'll go to Gary. How do you assess the first 100 days and what stands out to you in particular in terms of the Biden trade policy? Jeff. Well, thanks, Colin, and thank you for inviting us uh, to join you today. Uh, the Biden administration uh, really faces a big challenge, uh, and, it, and it, they've done so since day one. Uh, it's because of the uh, sharp, sharp divisions between Democrats and Republicans in Washington across the board, but with one key exception, not in trade policy. And so in, in the area of trade policy, there's scope for working with Congress, working with uh, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, and uh, I think that's why uh, Catherine Tai was confirmed by a vote of 98 to zero, uh, the only uh, cabinet member to receive uh, a, a large majority uh, unanimous vote uh, in, in, the, in the Senate. Uh, she's brought in an experienced team uh, almost primarily from uh, congressional staffs in the House and the Senate. And so I think there is an understanding that to get anything done on trade policy, they're going to have to work uh, on, on a, a joint platform that brings in Democrats and Republicans. Uh, that's largely a platform that is very similar in, in terms of substance to what uh, the policies of the Trump administration. But with uh, the singular uh, difference that the United States is likely to try to rebuild relations with allies. Uh, and, and so you see efforts uh, by uh, the USTR, even though she doesn't even have her, her team in place yet, just nominated last week, uh, that uh, she is trying to diffuse some, some problems uh, with regard to the uh, uh, pharmaceutical patents, with regard to the Boeing Airbus dispute with Europe, uh, with regard to di uh, digital services taxes. Uh, but uh, her primary task is to support uh, the president in his efforts to rebuild the U.S. economy uh, and to integrate trade and, 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 and climate into uh, overall U.S. economic policy. Uh, that's going to be her key tasks, and trade negotiations writ large are probably going to be a second-order priority for her uh, in the near term. Gary, Catherine Tai comes from Congress, so presumably, as Jeff said, you know, she understands could make some progress. I mean, certainly Canada, as we got through the, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement or USMCA, uh, at the end of the day, Lighthizer proved to be fairly adept, I think, in, in working with the Congress and therefore being able to advance what was then the, the Trump trade policy. So I guess uh, in, in following up on my question to Jeff about what stands out, do you see uh, opportunities for progress? Uh, yes, I think that's, that's one of the silver linings of the, uh, of the Biden administration's trade policy. Very good uh, relations with Congress, which might in time uh, lead to some curbing 
of the president's imperial power over uh, imposing Section 232 sanctions and doing all kinds of things on trade without any consultation with Congress. So let me say that's that's a good thing. And further, uh, if at some point uh, uh, President Biden and then working through Catherine Tai decides that uh, trade agreements would be a plausible thing to negotiate, uh, she will be very well positioned to uh, to enlist congressional support on those. So that's that that's a second silver lining. But I want to talk about the clouds, Colin. And first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to to this session. If you look at the big picture, the macroeconomic policy of the Biden administration is very favorable to trade in that the U.S. economy is expanding. I know we had a hiccup on the jobs report uh, just a few days ago, but um, the economy is going really gangbusters uh, and will continue to do very strong in the second half of 2021. And that will enlarge U.S. imports from everywhere, including, of course, Canada. And, uh, and uh, the dollar isn't quite so strong. That's not because of policy, that's because of market forces, but that's uh, moderately good for exports. So that's the macro policy. But if we turn to trade policy, it's not about trade. And you said it right in your introduction. Uh, in these days, in the Biden administration, consumers and corporations are second-class citizens. We're not going to do trade policy for them. And of course, that's a, a complete reversal from how trade policy has normally been thought about. And what, you know, what's the first class citizen? Well, at the top of the list is labor. And you've seen, of course, that uh, the, uh, the, the, the administration led by Catherine Tai is bringing a couple of complaints against Mexico already under the US MCA. And beyond that, there's the rhetoric that you know, trade policy has got to be good for workers, or it's not good, we're not going to do it. Uh, to me, I mean, I, I appreciate the politics of that. And I know it sounds great. Uh, I, I, just sitting here as an economist, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not believable. The big pro programs for workers in this country are President Biden's American Jobs Program, which he's trying to get through the Congress, you mentioned that. And then after that, the American Family Program, which you have a lot of social safety net things, those are big stuff. And if he gets them to, that will matter for workers. Trade policy is not worker policy. It, it can benefit by lifting all boats, but to try to focus trade policy on, on individual worker communities really means that you go down the path of protecting a narrow industry against all those consumers out there and it's an unfortunate direction. But again, I want to say, I want to give a silver lining and wrap up here. Um, you know, maybe with this talk about workers, and then as Jeff mentioned about climate as well, and again, trade policy is not climate policy, but, you know, you can harness it to some extent. If you do that for six months or a year, maybe you pave the way for a better uh, acceptance in Congress and amongst the American people 
of trade negotiations, which actually expand trade. Gary, I want to follow up about that because, you know, you heard the president when he, he spoke to the joint session of Congress. And the one thing that certainly Canadians ears perked up was when he talked about made in America and by American. Uh, he was pretty emphatic. Is that something that, you know, bluntly Canadians should be worried about? Well, it, it's very troublesome because when the president of the United States talks about made in America, by America, everything is going to be about jobs in America. Every other prime minister and president listens to that. And it's the very natural thing. Uh, and you know history as well as I do, Colin, probably better. But mercantilism was a prevailing doctrine for several centuries. And this is modern mercantilism. The idea we're going to make it at home, we're not going to buy it from abroad. Exports are good, imports are bad, all that stuff. That's all contained in this Buy America rhetoric. And uh, just coming down to the mechanics of it, uh, we've calculated it costs the U.S. economy about a quarter of a million dollars per job um, somehow saved or created by, by American policy. Very expensive, very inefficient policy, and very bad as an example for the rest of the world. But there it is. Um, that's the policy of the day. And I guess the if you want to look at the happy side of it, you know, fortunately, the U.S. government and state governments together are only about probably 15% of, um, of U.S. Uh, imports, uh, you know, control about 15% of the potential import market. So that leaves 85% to, to market forces. Jeff, I know the Peterson Institute has done work looking, for example, at the steel and aluminum tariffs and pointing out that basically cost the United States jobs and they didn't really work. But as Gary says, you know, mercantilism is something that is deep in the DNA of, of, of most countries. And certainly the Democrats have, uh, have, have, have usually been there. And I think in some ways uh, as a, some, as a member of the Senate, Mr. Biden would probably fit in that category. One of the things he's also set up is a sort of made in a, under the Made in America rubric as an office. Uh, and I think Celeste Dark, who comes from the AFL-CIO, to, again, to implement the Buy American stuff, which is part of the reason why you know, Canadians and Europeans and others sort of say, well, maybe there is something to this. Again, so I guess I pose the question I put to, to, uh, to Gary, should we be worried? And is there a way around this? Uh, well, Celeste Drake is, uh, is, is going to sort of oversee the procurement uh, process in the, uh, in, in, in the federal government, uh, including the exceptions that are granted. And the policy guidance uh, will be to uh, tighten up the, uh, uh, the rules for granting exceptions. Uh, and so this will be more following the letter of the law on, on, on the procurement guidelines. Uh, I think Gary's comments about the scope of the procurement is, is exactly right. There are two other problems uh, with the uh, Buy American focus. And one is, is, as we saw in 2009 and 2010, uh, adding these Buy American uh, requirements uh, to federal procurement, uh, not only the federal uh, projects, but the jobs that federal funds uh, uh, are sent, are given to states uh, to contract. Uh, what this does is it slows down the, uh, the contracting process. Uh, 
and so you see delays in the uh, uh, in, in the uh, approval of contracts and the uh, delays in the actual investment uh, because companies and uh, and and the government officials have to be so careful in, in seeing if they're following the, the, the letter of the law. So uh, that's going to act to counteract some of the beneficial uh, effects of a infrastructure plan if and when it gets through uh, the Congress, as it did in wastewater treatment plants and other things uh, in 2009 and 2010. The second problem uh, with it is that uh, it, it sets a bad example for others who will emulate us, as Gary said. And uh, we've been trying for years and years to get the Chinese and others uh, to sign up to more significant commitments on government procurement to open their markets and restrain uh, unfair competition for their uh, government contracts. Uh, that uh, basically is going to be off the table as the United States moves forward. Interesting, because I hadn't appreciated what you may say about slowing things down, because the one impression you get from Mr. Biden is that he does want to move things along fairly quickly and, he, and be able to show results at the end. Yeah, and, and, and that's uh, the, uh, uh, the unforeseen consequences. But actually, they were foreseen back in 2009. Gary and I wrote about it, and it came to pass uh, when, when the Obama policies were executed. And uh, uh, it, it, it needs to be reconsidered as, the, as they actually implement this Buy American policy. But all the laws and, and, and regulations are on the books already. And what, what Biden is saying is uh, he's going to uh, uh, be much stricter in their application. Eventually, sooner than later, many of us hope, we'll reopen the border. Um, is this an opportunity to reimagine how we clear people, goods, services, and data? Uh, Gary, why don't you start on that one? You know, this is a big deal for us because of, so, of, of all that transits the border. We've talked for years now about how we might do redo the border. Is a crisis an opportunity to do so? Well, it should be. You're absolutely right there. Uh, I guess one thing that the U.S. and Canada might cooperate on if we if we are going to start um, enforcing COVID passports for travelers, at least maybe Canada and the U.S. could come to a quick agreement on, you know, what kind of document vaccination proof serves as a COVID passport for all those people. I've got relatives in Seattle who often travel up to BC and, and so forth, uh, you know, to make the make it very easy to deal with that that issue, and that really is a 21st century issue, obviously between our two countries, but uh, more broadly internationally. The other thing, uh, there was good progress being made, but more could be done on um, pre-clearance of shipments, uh, you know, RFID and so forth, so that uh, you don't have any delay at the at the at the border on that. Uh, as I understand it, the big companies are very good at doing that kind of uh, pre-clearance. And the problem is getting the technology down to uh, smaller firms which don't have that many shipments crossing the border and making it easier. So that's a very, uh, very that's something that could be done. And the other thing that could be improved upon 
we have some language on it in the USMCA are small value shipments, the de minimis rule for uh, small value shipments where there's no custom duty, no tax, you just ship it across by UPS or FedEx or DHL. And uh, unfortunately, the Canadian uh, level for small value is, is rather on the lower side. So lifting those, uh, both Canada and Mexico, that would be help in that kind of electronic commerce, which is a growing feature of our uh, relations. Well, the, certainly the data piece is something which has picked up. And as you do point out, Gary, the bigger companies have adopted. And of course, that's the bulk of trade, but we're both countries are trying to include and reference in the roadmap to small and medium-sized right. enterprises and women and minorities to get involved. So this is where sometimes these smaller things do make a challenge. Jeff, your sense on, on the border? Because it is, of course, a big deal for us. No, I think Gary hit uh, all the high points. Uh, the only thing he missed was uh, uh, we miss uh, the Canadians down here in Florida. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and we want to come, come up to Canada in the, in the summertime. So, uh, uh, so I, I think uh, the services part of the relationship shouldn't be underestimated as well. Well, we, you know, after 9-11, when we had to came up with a smart border cord, we, we added basically a security screen to what had essentially been a custom screen. My sense going forward, but I'm interested in your view, Jeff, or we'll probably have to add a health dimension. I mean, Gary talked about some kind of vaccine passport. You know, you'd think we could work that into maybe the Nexus card or the Fast Pass, that kind of thing. Well, that that would make sense uh, on a, but it needs to be done on a federal level because the states uh, have widely different uh, rules, and uh, in Florida, the the governor has has basically put the kibosh on 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 vaccine passports, uh, uh, which could affect uh, the tourism trade in, in in Florida and the cruise ship uh, business. Uh, but this is, this is a, a big political uh, issue, uh, ideological issue that the Republican uh, uh, governors are particular uh, taking up. And it needs to, uh, the only way to get around that is to override it with, a federal, with, with federal legislation. So Jeff, Jeff, what you're saying is that the, some of the Republican governors are saying, no, we don't want this. And yet you've still got the health considerations coming in. It, this would require, as you say, the, the national government, the federal government to, to step in. Exactly, exactly. Well, I would think that would happen because aren't, aren't we going to start seeing, as, as countries open, man, the Brits have this sort of green light and amber light. And they, people are, we seem to be moving to something. It would make a lot of sense, bluntly, if Canada and the United States could come up with something which could then serve as a, a model for international travel yeah i think as as we we both get to the point where the vaccines are readily available and applied uh then uh i i think there will be less of a uh, uh emotional reaction uh and and people will look at the sensible ways of improving our ability to to cross borders and and to work together again I want to turn now to the big agreement. And we talked about the agreements, uh, Canada, US, NAFTA, now USMCA, CUSMA. Um, <laughs> you recently wrote a paper on the new NAFTA looking at some of the challenges and opportunities. Uh, you argue, 
together that we need to focus on cooperation on energy, including renewables, carbon emission standards, say we should focus on infrastructure collaboration and expand the NADBank program, which basically right now only applies to Mexico and the United States and increase its capital. Um, it strikes me this would jive with where Biden wants to come with Build Back Better. Why don't you share with the audience some of what you described in the paper about how we can use the current the new NAFTA to, to make progress in terms of that Bob Pastor North American idea, which I think we all share generally. Why don't you start off, uh, Jeff? Well, I, I, as, as you said, Colin, this is a, uh, uh, an appropriate time uh, to sort of revisit the, the ideas of working together or deepening North American economic integration, uh, because the objective is to improve the competitiveness of, of firms and workers in North America as we uh, compete against the world. And uh, so with the USMCA in place, even though it creates some uh, obstacles uh, for the competitiveness of, of parts of the auto sector, uh, it, it does allow us to continue without the cloud, the political cloud that, uh, that burden the implementation of NAFTA over much of its lifetime. And so with the United States pushing in new funds for infrastructure, one could think of uh, designing those uh, systems in a way that took advantage of the integrated production processes in North America. And uh, that makes sense in, in energy and the auto sector and, and other areas. Uh, but uh, it, it does run counter, unfortunately, to some of the new policies being implemented by the Mexican government, uh, particularly in the energy sector. And uh, the first meeting of the USMCA commission, the ministers get together next week. And I guess they will hear an earful from uh, USTR Catherine Tai uh, on some of the concerns uh, about the implementation of the agreement, particularly in, Me in Mexico. Yes, I mean, I think that was foreseeable, but essential to get it through Congress. And Gary, yeah. you know, the, in a sense, the, the final agreement was bore more resemblance to some of the Canadian ideas, particularly on labor and the environment, than certainly from where the Trump administration started from. But Nancy Pelosi and the House Ways and Means, and, and to Lighthizer's credit, you know, there was a compromise. It may not have suited the Mexicans, but from a kind of where I think the Biden administration is coming from in terms of inclusivity, focus on labor and environment, this agreement would be closer to what something they would, they can probably live with and, and, and therefore take forward. Is that fair, Gary? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, and certainly the labor aspect of the uh, USMCA, uh, th those are frontier provisions and we will see how they work out as these cases uh, come up with Mexico, two, two cases already, and I'm sure more will, will come and we'll see whether that uh, productively resolves the disputes or just leads on to a, to a hassle. So the labor part is very well advanced. On the, on the environmental side, of course, the uh, Trump administration didn't believe in global warming, uh, didn't believe it was a human-caused event, even if it was happening. And there's no mention of, uh, of, of emissions, carbon emissions in the USMCA. However, uh, this, there's plenty of scope for US, Mexico, Canada 
to work on the carbon emissions issue. And what will come down very quickly, and Jeff wrote about this years ago, um, or what kind of border adjustment, if any, we do in North America. This, uh, this uh, issue is being uh, teed up by the, Europe with their talk of a carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM. Uh, they haven't given the details, but that, that will trigger a discussion hopefully within North America about what our three countries do, if anything, and Jeff and I have our ideas on that. Um, I, I have to reinforce what, what Jeff just said about, about Mexico. Um, and we have to distinguish between electricity, um, oil, and gas, uh, gasoline, and then natural gas. Uh, for natural gas, uh, they're very good. There's no problem between flows between U.S. and Mexico, or uh, for that matter, uh, between U.S. And, and, and Canada on the natural gas. So that's doing okay. Uh, on the uh, oil side of things, uh, Mexico is taking a very nationalistic approach. You could say right out of Buy America, but here it's Buy Mexico. And they don't want any foreign companies, U.S. companies or whatever, they have much participation in the energy, either drilling or indeed retailing of, of energy through through gas stations in Mexico, and that's that that is a big problem on electricity. This is a challenge. I don't think it's an ideological issue the way oil is, but uh, you know the grids are not connected uh, between uh, Texas and. Mexico or between New Mexico and Mexico or between California and Mexico. And if you can get grid interconnection, you have much more efficient production and distribution of energy. Texas has its own problems on the grid. But that's an area where, thanks to this recent freeze and the breakdown in Texas, I think there's room to go, go forward. I, I can't leave energy without talking about, we've got a challenge right now involving Michigan and a pipe it goes under the Mackinac Straits. It's been there since the 1950s that the governor wants to shut down. Uh, and, and of course, I, I, I juxtapose that against the, the ransomware episode this past week that's now cutting off energy to New England. Yeah, right, right, uh, right. Do, do, you, do you have any, any advice? Because this is certainly one of those irritants on the Canada-US relationship. And it takes, uh, it's wound up in the courts and all of this stuff gets litigated through. But to, to your point about you know, the, our, our grids between Canada and the United States are integrated. The pipelines we thought were integrated, but um, uh, are we looking to see more troubles in that area? Well, that's very unfortunate. I, I was very, um, I was distressed when Biden canceled the XL pipeline and this Mackinac thing is more of the same. And I'm sure there are environmentalists in the U.S. who think that, uh, you know, let's shut down all the pipelines. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, that's not going to make a contribution to the carbon emissions problem, but it will make an, a big contribution to uh, cross-border friction. And I'm hoping that as new pipeline issues come up, the Biden administration will do something which is much more congenial to North America than what it did on the XL. Jeff, before I leave the, the NAFTA, uh, is there, do you think there's enough political will with the Biden administration to move some of your ideas forward? Because we've got a, we've got the Canada-US roadmap, 
There's a Mexico-US sort of agreement, although it's not as, as thorough, as detailed as the roadmap. And of course, we've now got our, our new, uh, you, new NAFTA, as you point out. Do, do, do you think there's enough oomph in the administration in Congress to be able to make some progress? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think uh, the focus will be on renewables uh, because you have to uh, increase the uh, uh, availability uh, of, of, of renewable energy resources if you're going to actually have an effective phase down of the fossil fuel uh, generated uh, uh, electricity. So uh, that's part of it. it. It's not something that's immediate. So taking knee-jerk reactions to cut off large sources of supply, I think that's a lesson Joe Biden learned uh, you can't do when he talked, when he campaigned in Pennsylvania about fracking, he knows that this is a subject that the policy has to be implemented incrementally over a significant period of time. And his, uh, his, his time horizon for, for the more uh, dramatic changes are really 10, 15 years out. So gener uh, renewable generation plus uh, uh, a particular focus on the automotive sector and electric vehicles uh, and, and, and ramping up the infrastructure to enable a broader usage of electric vehicles and improving the battery technologies. So that's going to proceed. Well, that's, that's hopeful. Yeah. Thank you, because that's an area where certainly Canada and the United States uh, and at the sub-state sub level, provinces and, and states can work together. Yeah. Yeah, that's an area where the United States and Canada really can be in the lead. Uh, uh, and we already have the infrastructure, uh, the, the, uh, the business infrastructure to, uh, to, to integrate our two, uh, our two economies in this area. I want to move now to the WTO. The Trump administration effectively froze WTO dispute settlement with its refusal to appoint new judges. Canada has taken the lead working with like-minded nations and trying to find solutions to American unhappiness about dispute settlement the WTO. There's certainly an acknowledgement that there, there, there were legitimate reasons, uh, grounds behind the unhappiness. Um, we, we think we're making some progress in this sort of Ottawa group, but where do you think the Biden administration will be on the WTO? Uh, Jeff, why don't you continue and then to Gary? Well, I think the, the Biden administration is taking a more constructive uh, view towards the WTO than its predecessor but that's a low bar to clear. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was dismayed that in announcing uh, the deputy US trade representatives, one slot was not, uh, was not included and that was the US ambassador to the WTO. There's still no nomina nomination, nominee for that, for that important position. Uh, and uh, so I think basically the policy from the White House will be the, the WTO uh, is a useful uh, institution if it, can, if it can work. And it has to show, uh, 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 earn its respect again. Uh, and in, in the key-ish areas that uh, require immediate uh, uh, results. And first and foremost, dealing with vaccine nationalism. Uh, so the issue of of export controls and the patent, pharmaceutical patent issues. I think that's one area where uh, the new director general 
has to deploy her considerable skills to uh, work out a, a, a compromise uh, to uh, help the developing countries out of this terrible pandemic. Uh, there's been some notable progress and, and the uh, surprising uh, decision uh, by the White House and, and USTR uh, to support some type of uh, uh, waiver, uh, IP waiver, uh, I think is, is, is a step forward. Not that it's going to change much in the nature of the business of the pharmaceutical industry, but to show the commitment of the United States to move forward and address the problems of developing countries. Uh, but it's gotta, it, that's gotta be done. And maybe a few other you know, quick wins to justify going forward and, and reviving the dispute settlement process. So essentially like Trump and like the Obama before, uh, the resurrection or the reform of the appellate body will depend on the willingness of other countries to accept the need for WTO rulemaking reform. Uh, and the two will go hand in glove. Once, once you show some progress, then I think uh, solving the uh, reform issue on the appellate body will be fairly easy. Gary and I basically gave a solution a couple of years ago. Gary, do you want to add anything to what Jeff said? You know, because it is certainly... We, we, there's a feeling that we have to have a WTO, not just as a talk shop, but dispute settlement was critical. And hopefully, as you and Jeff have both pointed out in a number of your papers, to negotiate in different areas, whether we're talking data or intellectual property or, or dealing with pandemics. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm moderately hopeful that by the time of the uh, ministerial conference in November, I think that's the 12th ministerial conference under the WTO, that a deal will be worked out on uh, the dispute settlement process that will allow for some resurrection of the appellate body. But what I would say the deal requires is, is at least um, three elements. Jeff and I, as, as Jeff said, have written a long policy brief on this, but the three core elements are first, that when the appellate body has, is confronted by an issue to which the members have not uh, reached an agreement, that the appellate body will not fill the gap by writing text which does not exist in the agreement. No more gap filling. The appellate body should just say, well, you know, the members didn't reach an agreement on this issue. We toss it back to them to reach an agreement. That's point one. Point two is the appellate body has to uh, respect the deadlines for issuing opinions. Because in commerce, time is everything. Time is money. It's, uh, everybody knows this. And if you don't have an don't have a solution within you know, the, the, the time which is provided, which is say roughly six months when you add it all together, you know, it doesn't really matter in commercial terms, but the appellate body has completely ignored all those time deadlines from the get-go. So it has to issue its opinions within a short period of time uh, and that has to be enforced. And thirdly, which relates to that point, is, you know, it's unbelievable. The appellate body has written 
books on a single issue. We don't need books. The Supreme Court of the United States, I don't know about the Canadian Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court of the United States, it issues opinions of, you know, 50 pages. That's a great plenty. You can decide any issue in 50 pages. And so that's a third thing. Well, if we, if we have a new appellate body with new members and so forth, and they observe those three, they're instructed to observe, I think that that would resolve a lot of U.S. complaints. Let me just put in a word on the intellectual property issue where, where I may have some small difference with Jeff, but I don't regard a waiver as an important step forward in resolving the world's need for vaccines. You could waive all the patents and that will not enable India, South Africa, Brazil, Pakistan, Indonesia to manufacture mRNA or even the adenovirus. Those require hands-on trade secret knowledge of skilled professionals and dozens of them. And it's not a matter of giving some formula away. It's a matter of hands-on training, which the Chinese are finding as well, or applying as well. And so the immediate answer to the vaccine problem is produce vaccines in Canada, in the US, in Europe, in Japan, and provide them to the world at no cost. That's, that's the real issue, not the IP issue. And I think governments realize that. And the IP waiver is kind of a PR thing that uh, uh, creates some happiness in, in some people, minds who really don't like pharma companies, even though they're essential. <laughs> All right, well, I think uh, you know, certainly something like that is probably going to happen. Dave, let me turn to you now because I'm sure we've got some questions. We do. Uh, okay, I'll start with the first one about uh, some of the, the technicalities of our new trade agreement. Um, what's the likelihood that the you smack that free trade commission will have a larger influence than the under the NAFTA, i.e. is uh, going to be a serious body for monitoring and ensuring the proper functioning of the agreement? Okay, the free trade commission, Jeff. And, and then because this is something both of you know well, why don't you start, Jeff? Well, I think because there's much more uh, monitoring and reporting requirements in the USMCA, uh, there will be more attention to the implementation. Uh, and uh, I think the, the, the objective is to ensure that uh, these enforcement uh, bodies, like the rapid response mechanism on labor disputes, uh, work quickly so to avoid the uh, problem wending its way up to the ministers. Uh, but I think uh, the, the precedence will be set next week when the USTR uh, tie will begin to lay out uh, indictments or, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know if she will include uh, agricultural products, but uh, I think the first uh, problems will definitely be the labor oriented ones uh, with regard to Mexico. Gary, and, and it enlarges a bit, I mean, yes, the Free Trade Council, but there's a whole series of, of, of bodies set up within the new NAFTA you know, one that we're looking particularly at is the Competitiveness Council. And, and I, I've already seen early signs of Canadians, Americans, and Mexicans wanting to, to, to take this forward in a positive way and sort of use, see the, the new NAFTA as, as, a, as evergreen and to be able to continue to make reforms. 
particularly when it comes to competitiveness, which is, I think, arguably what the whole agreement is about in terms of a North American platform. Well, uh, well I agree with you, Colin, and, and uh, that would be a very happy day if, in fact, all those mechanisms which are laid out in the agreement have some life. The, the sad, one sad aspect of the long history of NAFTA is that the mechanisms for consultation and so forth were, were, not, were not much used and the U.S. actually kind of um, uh, made it very difficult to use the dispute settlement mechanism on aid, on anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases. So, you know, you had the architecture, but you didn't actually have anybody in the building. I'm hopeful that with the Biden administration, there'll be a totally different approach on that. But it really remains to be seen. And as Jeff said, uh, the meeting next week will, uh, will set the tone. Do you think that Congress is going to have a greater interest? Because in, in, in some ways, this is a made in Congress agreement this time. Well, you know, Congress has been very lively on objecting on agriculture, which was mentioned. Uh, Mexico has uh, obstructed some agricultural exports from the United States and on energy. And of course, is watching very closely on these labor disputes. So yes, uh, they're not not the whole Congress by any means, but there are clusters of congressmen and senators who um, will be very attentive. So yes, I do think they will uh, play a bigger role this time around. Thank you, Dave. Next question. Okay. Um does the new administration's trade policy um, have any effect on Canada's innovation sectors? Will U.S. be looking to increase access or investment? Well, who wants to take that? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just set off a few words. I mean, I think, again, that remains to be seen. As, as you know, Colin and Dave, the U.S. has in train some huge subsidies for select sectors. Semiconductors is right up front, but AI, artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing are close behind and there are others, high tech sectors as well. So a big question, which is not yet resolved, is whether Canadian companies or indeed any foreign companies are going to somehow participate in these uh, subsidies and innovation policies going forward. I hope so, but that remains to be determined. And the Buy America flavor doesn't speak well to that possibility, but but realities are that there's a lot of uh, good technology which is not made in America. So hopefully there'll be some flexibility on that. I think that there's got to be some opportunity. I think of you know particularly on climate, energy, the environment, where Canada has certain expertise, and we were already so integrated that that should be shared. Well, I, I think broadening a, uh, a North American approach uh, is more doable in, in, the, in the climate area, for example. Uh, and maybe with regard to uh, the automotive sector where we already have that infrastructure in place. Uh, but Gary's point I think is, is right. There's tens of billions of dollars at stake uh, in, in the uh, industrial policy subsidies that are included in, in, in current legislation. And they are likely to be tied to buy American you know, policies or regulations. So uh, that poses some, some un, uncomfortable questions for, for the uh, 
for U.S. policymakers. Okay, Dave. So a uh, question related to that. Um, traditionally, defense has been treated as a special market. Um, do you see the Buy American policy influencing um, the way that the North American defense market structures now? Will there be changes uh, in terms of how Canadian companies can access U.S. defense opportunities? Jeff, why don't you start? Because you know th this goes back to the Second World War and post defense production sharing agreements and there's a whole panoply of, of things that we've certainly between Canada and the United States. And I think this one applies more to Canada and the U.S. rather than to, with Mexico. Absolutely. And, and the, the person in the team of Huffbauer and Stott who works on this more is Huffbauer. So okay. I'm going to punt over to Gary. <laughs> well, decades ago when I was in the Treasury, as you mentioned, Colin, I, I handled some of this. And um, as the questioner indicates, the U.S., tends to be very nationalistic on defense procurement, but occasionally, occasionally, and with Canada more than anyone else, has some production sharing and, and, and uh, procurement uh, from trusted allies. Uh, I agree with the thrust of the question that the Buy America flavor cuts against that direction. However, there's another flavor of the Biden administration, which is build our alliances and especially build our military alliances. The U.S. has long complained about other countries uh, in NATO not spending what they should spend on defense and so forth. And there's a big push in, in this area in the Biden administration as opposed to Trump, who was kind of a go-it-alone guy. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that second thread will lead uh, to more procurement in a way that's you know very practical and, and will be done. That's a hope and an aspiration. We'll see what actually happens. Because there's you know work. Remember, uh, I've got, I've forgotten what it actually stands for, but the NTIB, which was also to include Australia and the United Kingdom, you know, to your point about the, and the, the, the making the alliances work better and, and therefore sharing production. You know, I, I don't know if whether that still has any life. That idea. I don't know. I can't shed any light on that. I, I, I just hope it would, because I think, um, you know, that's part of the glue of the alliance. And there are plenty of countries outside, firms outside the United States, which can make a real contribution to, uh, to defense production. So I'm hopeful that the, uh, the, well, I know from my working with the Pentagon that they're very open are much more open to procurement abroad, but then you get this protectionist reaction, sometimes from Congress, sometimes from constituent firms in the US, which push against it. So it uh, remains to be seen. So uh, indeed something we do have to watch. Dave, thank you. What, what's, what else is on the question and answer? So there's two more, uh, both related to line five, so I'll, I'll take them as a pair. Um, one's about the specifics of the uh, line five uh, circumstances, and that's uh, there's a binding treaty that, that binds national governments and prevents interference by states. So at some point, doesn't the administration have to intervene to comply with U.S. treaty obligations? And then a related question, I think, uh, drawing off of that, um, can we read anything into the Biden administration's handling of the line five incident about how it will... Um, proceed on other uh, potentially related aspects of trade policy. So as an example, uh, potentially whether or not there's an other environmental consideration uh, that's at play. Is, is there anything to be gleaned from 
what they're doing on line five, specifically about how they'll act more broadly. Jeff, do you want to take a shot? We talked a little bit about, but these are a couple of specific questions. As I mentioned, it's certainly headlines in Canada these days. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a, a lot of detailed uh, knowledge of the, of, of the case. Uh, the State Department obviously has to come in uh, and, 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 and work with the state government. Uh, and the State Department's still sort of basically staffing up uh, at the sub-cabinet level. Uh, so uh, this is something that uh, I think needs to be attended to. Uh, obviously, Michigan is a very important state politically. Uh, and so we will get some attention from, from, from Washington. And you make a good point, Jeff, in that we kind of assume an administration comes in, everything suddenly falls into place. But while this administration is moving quickly, it, it still takes, certainly my experience, is sort of six, nine months, a year before all the positions, especially the critical positions from a relationship as deep as Canada, the, the assistant secretaries, the deputy assistant secretaries, certainly, Gary, you know this from your own experience, the, the, this is the area, the, the, the critical area where the details get sorted out in my experience. Absolutely. And, uh, and the Biden administration was, uh, was impeded. Uh, uh, that's the most polite term I can, I can use. Uh, in preparing for day one uh, by obstructions put up by the outgoing administration. Uh, it was rather shameful. Yeah, I, I agree with what Jeff just said. And I, I would add that um, this question of to what extent the federal government is going to override uh, state policies is a um, it's an issue for every every administration. Um, you see, right now there's a debate over voting practices within the states, and a major bill coming forward. Uh, and the Democrats would like to override uh, state decisions on on how voting ought to be held in terms of absentee ballots and mail-in ballots and blah, blah, blah. Well, in terms of uh, U.S. relations with foreign uh, governments, usually the U.S. has come down to federal preeminence, even though in some instances state policies do uh, do interfere, and I know in the tax area and some other areas, state policies have interfered, and the U.S. government was reluctant to use federal preeminence on this particular case. You know, I really don't know. And as Jeff pointed out, Michigan is politically a very important swing state, and I don't really know what the opinion is in Michigan and whether there's a hot button issue within the Mich Michigan constituencies, but if it is, that would tend to retard a federal preemption. But if it isn't, federal preemption is the norm in terms of, um, of interaction with other countries. Jeff, before the hour goes, I want to ask you about China because it's a, you know, it, 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 it is, it's a critical to Canada and the United States. We haven't talked a lot about that. I know you've been doing, you've been traveling to and from China a lot over the last few years. Where is the Biden administration with China in terms of trade policy? Because it does have implications for Canada. Well, I think it is much more pragmatic and, uh, and, and, and nuanced than, than the Trump administration. Uh, and it's thinking before, uh, before shooting. Uh, and that's because there are certain areas where we have to cooperate with China. Uh, climate change, first and foremost, 
but also dealing with the pandemic uh, and uh, support in the WTO writ large. Many, uh, but importantly, dealing with the, uh, the uh, problem of nuclear proliferation in Iran and North Korea. So that has to balance with the political pressures at home to maintain trade pressure and to, and, and to maintain the trade restrictions imposed over the past uh, few years on trade and investment with China. There's got, they, they've got to find some way of balancing those issues while interjecting new concerns about human rights and democracy in Hong Kong uh, that are going to further inflame uh, the bilateral relationship with China. It's a tough balancing act uh, and one that will have to weigh on national interests of both. Uh, and that, that's why I say pragmatic and, that's, and it's being led by, uh, by Secretary of State Blinken. Gary, any insights on the China side to add to Jeff's? <laughs> well, I think Jeff hit all the right points. I, what I would say is just to add to that, um, I, I, I was at a national security uh, meeting yesterday and the, the point which is quite central is Taiwan. If China decides to move against Taiwan more aggressively, and there's a lot of logic for China's expansionism to do that, that will, uh, that will engulf us all in harder alliances against China, in uh, very elaborate war games, escalation ladders, and so forth. However, if uh, President Xi Jinping is relaxed about Taiwan and doesn't do any new uh, shutdowns in Hong Kong beyond what he's already done, which is pretty extensive and doesn't further inflame the, the Uyghur issue in Xinjiang, then I think the pragmatic instincts which Jeff uh, emphasized in the Biden administration can really lead a lot of uh, uh, policy cooperation in some in some areas. I'm not sure that uh, trade flows and technology flows between the U.S. And, and and China are those areas, but there are other areas where there could be cooperation. So I'm fairly optimistic, provided that President Xi is patient on agendas, which I'm sure he wants to pursue. Let, let right, me add just one point on this, if I may, Colin. Please. This, this is the reason why I've been arguing for the past year or more that Biden uh, will need to reconsider his approach to uh, rejoining the CPTPP. And that, of course, has implications for Mexico and Canada, because doing so would, re would probably mean that the United States would call for some changes in that pact in line with what is in the USMCA. So not a problem for Mexico and, and, and Canada, but something that I think uh, will, will occur sooner rather than later as these pressures in the US-China relationship mount. Uh, interesting, so you're, you're suggesting because I'm thinking after the midterms, but you're thinking that the US may well look for geostrategic reasons at the TPP, CPTPP sooner than later. I, I, I wouldn't bet against it, uh, but it's certainly the conventional wisdom now is that it would be uh, a post midterm election issue. I think it could come up sooner. Okay. All right. Well, my final question to both of you, and I'll start with you, uh, Jeff, is what are you reading these days or what are you streaming? 
<laughs> well, uh, what it's, it has nothing to do with trade and economics, and uh, which which maintains one's sanity. Uh, but I've been a big fan of uh, Kazuo Ishiguro uh, for a long time, the Nobel Prize winner. Yes. Uh, and uh, so uh, his insights into society, in which he's not a native, uh, are, are remarkable. And his writing is brilliant and clear. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to uh, the new book that just came out, uh, Clara and the Sun, uh, following <laughs> up on the brilliant book that I reread, uh, uh, Never Let Me Go, uh, which is, is just wonderful, wonderful literature. Well, I will tell you, my wife just finished Clown the Sun and just raved about it. And yeah. she said it was a page turner. So yeah. it's a bit heavy for me. I know I stick to my CS uh, Forrester hornblower, yeah. but, uh, but uh, she, she would certainly endorse where you're coming from. Gary, what about you? Well, uh, like you and Jeff, I probably spend most of my time uh, reading uh, reading the papers online, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and all sorts of blogs. So that's the majority of my reading. But for pleasure reading, I'm uh, reading again Jean Le Carre's books. I think they're masterpieces, each and every one. And I enjoy them the second time, you know, 20 years after I first read them. And I've still got a couple to go. I, I completely concur, especially the Smiley series. Uh, yeah. That trio are superb. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Global Exchange. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.